testimony, a place where we remember the past to give meaning to the present and educate for the future. My name is Sean, and I'm your host for this podcast. If you haven't had a chance to listen to my introductory episode yet, I would encourage any listener to check that out first so you can get a broader sense of what this series is about and what my goals are. In today's episode, we'll start our exploration of different sites of genocide memory in the greater Chicago area. We'll think specifically about how survivor communities have engraved memory of trauma into the physical landscape of their new American home. These spaces serve dual purposes of hearkening to the past while providing spaces to educate for future generations. Our first memorial space we'll visit for this episode is at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center in the village of Skokie was just a few miles northwest of Chicago proper. The Holocaust is by far the most well-known genocide for most Americans, but I'll just provide a brief synopsis for those who might need a refresher. The Holocaust, which is a, a word that literally means sacrifice by fire, was the murder of over 6 million Jews in Europe during World War II. It was perpetrated by notions of racial superiority in the National Socialist or the Nazi party in Germany under Adolf Hitler, who used anti-Semitism as a means to rally Germans against perceived threats of communism and non-Aryan races. What culminated in the infamous concentration camps and the gas chambers actually evolved over several years of gradual dehumanizing Jews. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, Jews were blamed for Germany's losses in World War I. They were also blamed for being part in some communist conspiracy to destabilize Germany in the making of the so-called German race impure. This rhetoric of fear led to Jews being removed from positions of authority, such as college professors, lawyers, doctors, businessmen. Businesses were boycotted, public spaces became segregated, and Jews had to distinguish themselves by wearing a Star of David on their clothes. By the time World War II broke out, Jews, not only in Germany, but in other places conquered by the Nazis, such as Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the like, were being rounded up into cramped ghettos in the inner cities, with little access to food, health care, or employment. The war context significantly raised the stakes of Europe's Jews, the majority of whom were caught between the invading forces of Nazi Germany from the West as well as the Soviet Union from the East. Now, it's important, I think, to emphasize for listeners the war context of the Holocaust in that it wasn't just some isolated event happening in a vacuum. Although the Soviets had, of course, a very different agenda and weren't necessarily fighting a race war in the way that the Nazis were, The results of this Eastern Front between Germany and the Soviet Union very much contributed to the rapid destruction of Jewish lives and Jewish culture during the Second World War. In January of 1942, Nazi leaders came up with a so-called final solution to the Jewish question, which was a complete genocide. Death camps were created in Poland because it was seen as a more efficient way to eliminate the Jewish population as war ammunition became increasingly scarce, as it became clear that the Nazis and their fascist allies would not win the war. 
By the end of the war, over 11 million civilians were killed as a result of the Nazis' policies. Six million of those were Jews, and the other five million non-Jewish victims included political dissidents, disabled people, gay men, Slavic peoples, Roma or gypsies, communists, socialists, and Jehovah's Witnesses. The aftermath of the Holocaust led to the emergence of a worldwide conversation about human rights. Since the 1960s, the Holocaust began to emerge as a prime example of genocide in the modern world, though it certainly was not the first nor the last atrocity. Today, Holocaust museums and education centers around the world take leadership in education about human rights issues and what everyday people can do to prevent such atrocities from happening in the future. In this episode, I'll be talking with Kelly Zanni, the Director of Education at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, who will be leading me through some of the museum's commemorative spaces. How are you doing, Kelly? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks good. for, thanks for um, participating. Happy to participate. So, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, your role in the museum and sure. kind of what you do here? Sure. So I am Director of Education for the museum, so I oversee all programming for students and teachers. So that includes our field trip program, our professional development workshops for teachers, our leadership days for kids, um, our traveling resource trunk program. I oversee the training and management of our 200 plus docent volunteer corps, um, 60 plus survivor speakers that we're blessed to still have, um, our, all of our public programming for our community, and then our law enforcement training for Chicago Police Department recruits, sergeants, lieutenants, and Cook County sheriffs and uh, correctional officers. Wow. It's a lot of hats. It's a lot, it's a lot <laughs> it's to do. A lot of hats. <laughs> for yeah. sure, for sure. This museum opened in 2009, but its history goes back to the 1970s when Skokie had the largest population of Holocaust survivors per capita in the world outside of Jerusalem. In the late 1970s, Skokie was really one of those first suburbs north of the city that was being settled by Jews in general, but also uh, survivors who had come to Chicago, were beginning to be successful on the south and west side of the city, wanted to have families, wanted to kind of go to suburbia. Um, and Skokie was one of those first suburbs to be settled. It was also one of the few northern suburbs that didn't have an anti-Jewish covenants, so it actually allowed Jews to build homes here and to live here. Um, so in the late uh, 1970s, Skokie ended up having one of the largest survivor populations per capita in the world outside the state of Israel. Around 7,000 survivors of the Holocaust lived here. And a small group of neo-Nazis led by a gentleman, Frank Collin, petitioned a number of villages and towns to march. And Skokie uh, responded, you are not going to come here, you're not going to march here. And pretty much long story short, um, it ended up becoming a huge uh, freedom of speech court case, ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, but it was one of those kind of rallying cries for the survivors in this community, the citizens of this community that realized that if these new types of Nazis could come on their soil and march and in a place where they thought they were free, right, they could rebuild their lives, that not enough people knew about the Holocaust and the lessons of the Holocaust and that education was the best way to do that. Uh, so in response to the marches, um, they formed what was then our parent organization, the Holocaust Memorial Foundation of Illinois, uh, which was a small museum and education center for 30 plus years 
that did absolutely incredible work on Main Street in Skokie. So we're very site-specific here. And I would say even today, Skokie as a community, um, there are actually over 96 different languages um, and ethnicities represented and cultures represented here in Skokie. Um, mayor Van Dusen, who's the mayor of Skokie, is just a welcoming community. You drive around Skokie nowadays and people have law and signs that say Skokie welcomes everyone. I think it, it just continues to make sense that our museum is here of all places. So very site specific why we're here. As Kelly explained, the Illinois Holocaust Museum has a distinctive local character in that it has a direct connection to the local Jewish community. Unlike larger Holocaust museums, such as the one in DC, which shows the Holocaust as some event that happened over there um, for many visitors, the Illinois Holocaust Museum's personal connection to a local diaspora community makes the Holocaust a story about what happened to your neighbors across the street and what you can do personally to stand up against hatred. Kelly provided some knowledge about the architectural features in the museum's memorial spaces and how they are used. The room we're in right now is our Pritzker Hall of Reflection. It is the only room in the museum. We have two memorial spaces, um, but it's really the only area in our museum that's either exhibition or memorial space that's lit by natural light. Um, it is, as you can tell from the architecture of the building, um, everything is exposed brickwork. Um, and it's very industrial looking, but it's also the only area in the museum that has the most symbolic Jewish architecture. Um, so you will notice when you walk into this place of reflection that there are 12 stools to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 18 windows with candles in them to represent high or life. The Hebrew word high is made up of the letters het and yod, which when combined have the numerical value of 18. And then along this huge wall that you see of um, uh, metal on the wall or just even the cubes of the windows are all in the measure of cubit, mm -hmm. which is the measurement that Noah built his ark mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. And that's roughly 18 inches just, or so. Yeah, so yeah. high again to life. Yeah. Um, but it's a space in which visitors can come, of course, to decompress and reflect um, on their visit, but it is also a place in which um, we kind of use multi-purpose. So young people can come here uh, to listen to Holocaust survivors, uh, that it may be a more small and intimate conversation. This is also a place when we're looking to um, sign bills or pieces of legislation that we hold them in here because of its significance, um, or also to speak out against uh, something. So uh, last uh, year, we actually, shortly after the travel ban was issued by the administration, held a press conference in this space. Um, just symbolically, I think it's very powerful. It's a beautiful space, yes, um, but it's a space, I think, that has a lot of meaning, we think, for us, um, and again, kind of shows the light, right? The, um, the light that we want to show about the life and the um, kind of moving forward in mm. the story and moving to the lessons mm. uh, is what this space represents. Yeah. And it's interesting to me at the point about the light and, you know, in this museum for people who haven't been here before, you know, they need to know the, the, the shape of the building itself is very symbolic. Yes. Because we're in the light side of the building, but there's also a dark side. Right. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that architectural? Sure. So <clears throat> visitors, so the architect Stanley Tigerman, he wanted visitors to enter and exit 
um, the building on two different ends. That you enter into um, the dark side color of the building that's essentially black colored. Um, that you enter into the dark side of the building, you're entering into the chaos of the Holocaust, of genocide. Um, and that when you begin to transition through the building and you exit, you're exiting on the light side of the building that's painted white, hopefully with the idea that you're more educated and you're more enlightened. Um, but all our educational activity takes place on the light side of the building, so not only our places of reflection, but our classrooms, our larger hall where we hold all our trainings and some of our larger, more significant programs are held there. Our library is on the light side of the building. Um, but there's also um, some other elements of the architecture that are symbolic, so our building actually um, almost is split. Um, it sits on almost a hinge is what we call it. We call it internally here a cleave, um, but it sits on a hinge and within that, uh, within that cleave, within that void, that space um, is to, meant to represent the rupture of humanity, the indifference of humanity during genocide, but our 20th century uh, rail car sits within that space, not only because it was the only space that would fit, <laughs> but symbolically kind of represents that transition within the final solution. Um, but even as a visitor, when you walk in, you will notice when you walk into the dark side of the building, you walk into that first door, then you walk through a second door past security, and then when you go into our core Holocaust exhibition, you're walking through a third door, with the idea being that you are being three times removed mm -hmm. from your outside experience, preparing you for the journey that you're going to take through the core exhibit. Interesting. And so by the time visitors get to this particular space, most of them have already seen the all the entire gone through the whole yes exhibition. if you're a public visitor more than likely you you're coming to this as mm -hmm. your last space uh if you're an organized school group this could very well be the first space that you that you see just as a introduction yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I've, I've noticed this looking around this room that there's really no text panel there's no really interpret was that purposeful that was purposeful both both the memorial spaces are meant to kind of be open to interpretation and reflection. And I think you'll notice just within the museum general, even within the core exhibition, it's not an encyclopedia on the wall. <laughs> um, it's meant to be that. It's meant to be an immersive experience that allows our visitor to feel the emotions that they want to mm -hmm. feel or not feel um, and to let kind of themselves guide the experience versus us telling uh, what experience you should have. Mm, for sure. And I imagine this space too also allows a place where people can decompress. Yes. And, and yes, and just, sit and yeah, talk yeah. and think. Even apart from the museum's desire to let visitors have their own interpretive experience, in some respect, there's really no way for art or any memorial space to adequately describe what happened to Europe's Jews during the Holocaust. Even in other contexts, there is a tendency for many Jewish memorials to feature less iconography or descriptive text. The Jewish interpretation of this particular room is rather implied in the physicality and the dimensions of the space. I also talked to Kelly about the issues of sound in this same room. Do you find that most, I mean, even like thinking about sound and acoustics in this mm -hmm. space, I mean, do you think people come into this with the expectation to be silent or quiet or had, mm -hmm. what, what have you noticed about visitors? So it's a challenge yeah. in this space because it is, you know, even as you and I are talking, it's echoey. Um, and I think that's one of the, the challenges within this space 
is that um, because so much of the architecture just in general in the building is exposed and open, uh, when we have very busy days, especially with school children here, and this space kind of is looking over the light side lobby where everybody's leaving, and imagine 600 kids descending onto the exit at the same time, it can get very loud up here, uh -huh. uh, which, can be, which can be a challenge. Yeah. Um, and equally so if, if you're here, um, there's an area of the museum, uh, actually this glass walkway that you see here, um, you can actually down below us um, is the closing film area. Mm. So as a visitor, um, the architect wanted you to be able to kind of see the footprints of the people walking. The architect always wanted the visitors to be having an exchange throughout, uh, throughout their experiences. So because of that, if there are a lot of kids up here, you're in the closing film area, you don't hear people walking, but you can hear the sound. Yeah. And um, in the corner over here down below, um, which I can show you later, is our survivor lounge. And if you're in there as well, it can be loud. Oh. So just inherently by the open concept of the architecture, it's great, it's effective, it's symbolic, but use sure, is like sure. sometimes a challenge. Sure. Yeah, use can be a challenge. And I'm curious, like, I mean, I'm sure you've been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Yeah. Like, how would you compare this space to the, their Hall of Remembrance? I think mm -hmm, that's what they call mm -hmm, it over there, mm -hmm. or other spaces that you know of. Um, well, I think the purpose is the same. Um, what I do like about the U.S. Museum space is the ability to actually light a candle. Mm -hmm. um, I think is very powerful. The quote that they have on the wall, which is escaping me right now, um, I think is very powerful. So I think that ability, um, if we were to add to this space or to rethink, I think anytime you can have a visitor have an additive experience, I think would, would mm -hmm. be beneficial, especially mm -hmm. in a memorial or reflection sure, space like that. Sure. So I, I would say that's one thing I do like about the National Museum yeah. space. Yeah. And so even here, if there was a visitor that wanted to um, give something or donate something, I, I think of memorials like the Vietnam Wall yeah. where people like, will leave stuff you know, does that, do you ever see something like that happen, happening here or? We do, but it's typically um, outside. So okay. uh, typically at our Pharaoh Fountain of the Righteous, where we recognize righteous, the righteous among the nation, um, we'll see people leave uh, rocks um, along, along the way, uh, but not oftentimes physically in the building where we see mm -hmm. people leave stuff um, in memoriam for their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After this, Kelly and I began to walk on a balcony overlooking the main museum exhibition as we made our way to the second memorial space in the building. As we're walking, I noticed you mentioned a little earlier about the kind of the exposed nature mm -hmm. of a lot of the architecture. You know, yeah, and it's those. the same as you're walking down these kind of balcony hallway areas here where you're able to look over, um, except now with this exhibition here, but once mm -hmm. this is down and on the other side, um, you're able to look into the core Holocaust exhibition. Again, the um, architect wanted the visitor to have an exchange with each other with this idea that we're always kind of witnesses to each other mm. um, and maybe bystanders to each other, uh, but always interacting and having a dialogue, even if, you know, a silent dialogue between each other. For sure, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So we're now in... This is called the, the Room of Remembrance, Remembrance right? yes, my favorite space. <laughs> it's my Tell favorite me, space. Why, how is it your favorite space? 
Well, for a couple of reasons. One, I think that, you know, when we were looking to create a remembrance room, early on in the process of creating uh, this space, we wanted to create a space where we would continue to humanize the story of the Holocaust for our visitors, but also um, for our visitors to understand not just to be in a, a Jewish story, but again, a human story and to find themselves within that story. So on this wall here, there's around a thousand first names in Hebrew, Yiddish, and English. I, we consciously wanted to choose first names because you as a visitor could see names like Molly and Eric mm. and Brian, names that are used today. Right. But each of these names represent not only thousands of victims, but also thousands of survivors. Um, they are almost burned into the wall, mm. similar to um, ash or smoke and slowly fade as ash might have rising up. And then we have our six windows here that in the evening time, there's kind of candles up above that are illuminated wow. in the evening to represent the six million Jewish victims that were killed. This is also um, a space where we have some Jewish architectural symbolism. So these are mirrors of uh, two towers that are outside the entrance or sit at the entrance of the cleave outside the museum of the last two towers of the Temple of Solomon, mm -hmm. Yaquim and Boaz. Um, visitors often think that they're smokestacks mm. <laughs> um, from initial blush, and I can, of course, you know, see that and sure. understand that. Um, but this is also, I think, the space that I, I like is because this is a space in which, you know, our survivors don't have cemeteries or headstones to go to, oftentimes to remember their families. And so they're able to come here and to remember their families and loved ones lost. Um, one of our Holocaust survivors, Aaron Elster, who we actually just lost last week, um, he always used to, um, his biggest struggle with his story was he had lost his little sister, Sarah. And um, he used to come here and he truly believed that Sarah's spirit um, was here in this room. Wow. Um, and so he would come and just sit by himself and kind of talk to her and check yeah. in with her. Um, you know, so that was that place for them. Sure. Um, I think for our visitors, particularly the young people that come here, the conversations that you can have with young people while looking at these first names, even if they don't find their own names or find their family members' names, that they're able to understand the power of your name, the mm. power of identity, mm -hmm. right? So great conversations about what happens during genocide when your identity is stripped away and you become a number, and then how is that identity rebuilt? Um, I think, again, it's great ways to have uh, relatable, powerful conversations with young people. Um, and then this book of remembrance is a carryover from our old uh, site on Main Street in Skokie, our Holocaust Memorial Foundation. Mm -hmm. This is a book compiled by descendants of the Shoah, so second and third generation, um, who aren't, you know, again, able to remember their family members. And so writing in the book, there's around 3,000 names in this book where they can remember their loved ones lost, where they're from, if they knew where they were killed, when they were killed. Um, we turn the pages about every, every six months. This is one of the additive things that we do have. Um, we're not currently physically adding to this book, mm -hmm. but um, in partnership with Yad Vashem, um, with their uh, memorial and onto every person there is a name program, yeah. we submit the names as well to that. Sure. So there's always some sort of 
living memorial yeah. of remembrance. Um, so this is one of the few carryovers in this museum from, from our old site. So there's a lot to unpack here. The presence of the names, as uh, Kelly mentioned, really tries to negate the anonymity of um, what the Nazis tried to do to uh, the Holocaust victims. Uh, and it's also similar in design to the uh, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., as uh, well as Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem. In both of those places, there's a, a similar motif of uh, these uh, individual persons and families um, that are rising up in a, in a similar vein to a smokestack. Um, the only difference is that in um, Yad Vashem and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., um, they use uh, actual images as opposed to um, the, the actual names of uh, victims. This is also reflective of larger trends in memorial culture in general, of actual names being the centerpiece text and oftentimes only text on a memorial. In America, this was popularized following Maya Lin's design for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in DC. And it continues on in things such as the National September 11th Memorial in New York City, where the names of 9-11 um, victims are uh, physically engraved um, around the perimeters of uh, what was once the Twin Towers. The names in all these memorials also evoke a sense of absence. In the Room of Remembrance at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, the physical dimensions certainly accomplish uh, this task given the room's position at the center of the cleave between the light and the dark sides of the museum. Um, and again, between that cleave and this void space is that German rail car um, below, and it leads towards this room that resembles the circular shape of a smokestack. But from an acoustic standpoint, I would actually say there's some issues that detract from this room, uh, similar to the echoey noises that you heard in the Hall of Reflection. The Room of Remembrance is not really a silent space, as there appears to be some HVAC generator running at the back of the cleave, um, creating that loud white noise that you could hear in the recording. If silence is supposed to evoke a sense of absence, uh, the humming that you could hear uh, takes some element of that away, I believe. These sound issues taken aside, I still think it's really interesting to see the sense of continuity with the memory book which is actually a common practice in Jewish culture, uh, something called Yitzker Bichir in Yiddish, where these memory books essentially become the gravesite for those who never had a proper burial. Since this book was brought over from the original museum center in Skokie, I asked Kelly her thoughts regarding the perseverance of Holocaust memory once the last of the Holocaust survivors dies. At another point, I also learned that the two separate commemorative spaces serve different audiences. The Hall of Reflection at the beginning was intended for outside visitors and educational visits, while the Room of Remembrance was intended with survivors in mind. All the while, there will soon be no survivors left, so the space has to adapt for that transition. As far as Holocaust memory and education goes, I would say, I mean, you know, we're now, you know, gen multiple generations in and more books that either you and I will ever be able to read and stay on top of. And I think now more than any other time, we're kind of at a crossroads. 
as far as Holocaust memory and education. Um, and I think Holocaust museums just in general, not only ours but others, I think we're dealing with, to your point, of how do we make this not just a static uh, past but make it di a dynamic task for future generations, Jewish or not, to learn about this. Um, and so I think um, our museum, I think we still need to uh, be a place of reflection and to honor that memory. I think any museum needs to be that. Um, but to be a living, breathing place where, like today, you bring other communities in to talk about shared experiences of survival, um, sh you know, parallels of resilience and courage and strength. Um, and we do that even now. We've, we've done a number of programs with the Rohingya community and with the Syrian community. Um, and you still remain baffled <laughs> by, the, by the fact that it continues to, to happen and that we continue to have these conversations. But I think for subsequent generations is, um, is just to continue to remember, to remember the, the, the lessons and to, stay, and to stay informed. And for us as an institution, to um, we always kind of say you know, not to um, rest on the assumption that we've done it all. Um, and partnering with organizations and communities that have experienced genocide um, to have programs and exhibits. So one of the things that I think we do really well as a museum is, and that I think Holocaust museums in general have to start doing, is um, having temporary, temporary and special exhibitions on other genocides. Um, and so in any of the temporary spaces that we do have here, um, we, you know, you can go through the core exhibition and say, okay, yes, it's happened. And in our closing film, we say to our visitor, well, now it's up to you. So what does that mean? You know, for some of our visitors, they may know what that means. For others, they don't. Um, so our temporary exhibitions are a response to that, to have that dialogue. So we have a temp show right now on the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, our Take a Stand Center with our holographic theater, where visitors can still have conversations with Holocaust survivors is the hope to try to be that answer. And so I think Holocaust museums need to not just be a memorial, but genuinely understand that they're a living, breathing right. <laughs> place. Um, and even changing, like we completely altered our docent training program three years ago um, and have trained all our docents now. We do like intensive storytelling. You know, so I think museums also, too, there's this, oh, we're, we're a Holocaust museum and there's sensitivities, and yeah, there are, but I don't think enough museums, you know, it's dates and facts and all that mm -hmm. stuff that bores people, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think Holocaust museums, just in general, when it comes to memory, they have to be more storytelling museums. Right. And they have to tell stories because the stories is what's going to connect that 13-year-old who has no connection to the Holocaust but may find something in that story to connect them to that history and may remember that 20 years from now mm. and may tell their kids. Um, so it's just trying, I think, as an institution to, to not just be a memorial but to, to find ways to keep that memory alive is important. Thinking more broadly about the geographic location of that space, Kelly also gave some insight as to the challenges of such a memorial space being located in Skokie, Illinois. So I think being in Skokie actually um, can be a geographical hindrance, to be okay. honest with you, okay. even though we're site-specific, which sure. is great. But there is no public transportation around here, which are the benefits of some of the other Holocaust museums. We're not, even if there wasn't public transportation, we're not in a major city. 
So it's, it can be difficult to get here, even though it's 10 minutes or so outside the city. Um, and even, you know, people up in the northern suburb, oh my gosh, it's so far, Skokie. So um, I think we have less of a challenge with the location than we do the topic. That's where we have the challenge. So um, I think that um, people, we, we always, you know, say internally as a staff, like we would be rich if we, uh, ha how many times we're told, number one, I didn't know Illinois had a Holocaust museum, or two, oh yeah, I've been meaning to get there, but I'm not Jewish, so why should I go, or two, um, yeah, I just, I got to prepare myself. I don't, mm. don't want to be sad. And so it's more of um, because we're not in the city and just getting foot traffic in general, you really got to want to come here. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's more of a challenge of the marketing game, right, and the outreach game. And you can't avoid the big H <laughs> on the door. So um, by us, you know, trying to highlight the stories, highlight, you know, yes, there are uh, depressing parts of this museum, but hopefully you leave uplifted. Um, by doing the programs that we do and the other exhibitions that we do. Um, you know, this past fall we had a huge exhibition on rock and roll, <laughs> Bill Graham and the Rock and Roll Revolution, which you would never think. Why would a Holocaust Museum have it? Um, but Bill Graham, who was a Holocaust survivor and really the father of many of the bands in the 60s and 70s that we know, was also the father of human rights concerts and how we, you know, Human Rights Now and Live Aid and all these concerts like I grew up with as a kid um, was a Holocaust survivor. And it drew an audience here that you never, never yeah. would have come to a Holocaust museum. So for us, that's more our challenge than the location. Um, and we have a lot of people that will say, why aren't you on the Museum Triangle or why aren't you in the city? The history is important to us mm -hmm. to stay here. Um, it's just figuring out how to get people here sure. without a car sure. <laughs> is our challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is our challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. What would you do to encourage, um, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast or just anyone in, in general, like, why should they come to the, to the Illinois Holocaust mm -hmm. Museum? So I would come to the Illinois Holocaust Museum because I think we're not only an institution of memory, but we're an institution of action. We're an institution that um, creates a state, a safe comfortable place for you as a visitor to not only experience the darkest part of, I think, chapter in history, but to also experience uh, those sparks of light, um, that hope, that resilience, that courage, that strength of the survivor community, but also you will leave empowered and understand that there are things that you can do as a global citizen, as an engaged citizen, mm -hmm. to stand up and speak out against human rights issues and social justice issues that you care about. Um, and so I think you'll leave inspired. You'll, you know, as our tagline says, you'll take history to heart, take a stand for humanity. And I think um, you'll find a parallel and a connection here, no mm. matter what your background is. For sure, for sure. And I like the word that the museum uses, uh, uh, be an upstander. Yes, be an upstander. Yeah. Yes, so. be an upstander. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Kelly, Thank you. for your time. And thanks. this has been a, been a privilege for you to show me around. Oh, happy to. Yeah. Happy so, to. All right. Thanks. Thanks. My conversation with Kelly at these memorial spaces helped me realize how the Jewish diaspora community, even the local community in Skokie, has used the collective experience of something traumatic like the Holocaust, yet applied in such a way to make it transculturally relevant to a non-Jewish audience. 
Like other Holocaust museums and education centers, the Illinois Holocaust Museum sets the Holocaust as a universal story that doesn't lie stuck in the past, but continues to inform our world today and the choices that we make. While this particular space is not the end-all be-all for local Jewish memory, its establishment as a center for education creates a vibrant link to present and future generations. Kelly briefly mentioned new innovations such as the holographic experience of survivor testimonies in the museum's Take-A-Stand Center. This allows a material experience of listening to a survivor face-to-face that will carry on after the last survivor has passed away. I, I really enjoyed um, this experience when I uh, attended last, and I'd encourage all of you to check out this experience along with other features of the museum. Uh, check out their website. Go to uh, www.ilholocaustmuseum.org. So we've run out of time for now, but I want to remind listeners that this is just the beginning of a conversation about memory. There's quite a few more features in the museum and issues surrounding local memory that we didn't quite get around to talking about. But some of the things that I talked about with Kelly will continue to resurface as we visit some other memorial sites around Chicago. For our next episode, we'll be seeing how a different genocide survivor diaspora in Chicago, the Cambodian community, uses their own cultural expressions in a memorial. And that's a wrap for episode one of Testimony. Royalty-free music is provided by Les Hayden in Vortex. Public domain music is by Hungarian Jewish composer Bella Bartok. This podcast has been produced and edited by Sean Jacobson. Audio recording equipment is courtesy of Loyola University's Digital Media Lab. And as always, I'd appreciate any listener feedback. Please subscribe if you haven't already on whatever podcast provider that you use. You can message me on social media with the handle Sean T. Jacobson. Or you can also email me at sjacobson1 at luc.edu. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Testimony.